The following message is from the 2012 IBCD Summer Institute, Changed by Grace. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace to us, which is certainly undeserved. In fact, Lord, uh, we would, by nature, push you away if you had not regenerated us and caused us to be new. And uh, Lord, uh, uh, we pray that you will bless us. And as we consider the local church and its importance to biblical counseling, Lord God, that you will actually uh, challenge us and, and make bells go off and that we can think more consistently about how to do this uh, work of discipleship. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, come on in. Well, yeah, it, yeah that, the clock is really off uh, by five minutes or something like that, but that's okay. We, we enjoy. Keep coming in. Just kind of move over to let some of those end seats for people coming in, okay? Just scrunch, scrunch on over, okay? Uh, this is the importance of the local church in biblical counseling. Um, if you uh, want something else, now's the time to leave, okay? <laughs> but uh, that's what we'll be discussing, Okay? Uh, so I'm just going to run through the notes and then give you lots of time for questions uh, because uh, I've done a, a lot of counseling in a lot of different venues. Started off, again, uh, getting converted in seminary at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia uh, under J. Adams' ministry and others, okay? And... Uh, uh, so I started out in CCEF, being the director of that, and being on the board and being involved in that, in that whole thing, and then went into the pastorate in northern New Jersey for eight years, then came out for CCEF to start CCF West, which is now IBCD, uh, where we are today. So we'll look at our notes, and let's go through these. I think we must learn from the past. If you don't learn from the past, uh, you're really going to fail. Uh, We live in the present, right? We live right now. It's one of the great things about worry. What does Jesus say? Dude, you've got enough problems today. Why worry about tomorrow? I mean, that's tongue. No one ever laughs at that. I think it's really humorous. You know, it's kind of like, dude, why are you worrying about today? You've got enough problems today. Let tomorrow worry about itself. Okay? Uh, But we are the. We really are the summary of our past. And this goes to counseling, and we're not trying to be all that practical in, in a nitty-gritty sense here, but you can't live in the past or the future. You can only live today. So we are concerned about people's past, but it's only to free them up to serve Jesus Christ today and in the future. You see, we are what we are from the past, but we're not bound by it. I mean, and that's why trying to figure out everything that was done wrong to me, even if it enlightens me of why I'm so screwed up, it doesn't help me to change, right? Knowing, just think about how many people have you witnessed to and told them, hey, there is a living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ was incarnated. He died for our sins. He offers you salvation. And they what? Like the rich young ruler, they what? They walk away. So, so the information and knowledge doesn't help them. It's only the work of the Spirit. So we live in the present, but are the sum of our past. Now, again, you see this, I think, all through the Old Testament. The history of creation, the fall and redemption are the foundation for understanding life from Jehovah's perspective. As I said last night in the seminar, I'll say it again. How do you understand what's happening in the Supreme Court? How are you going to understand what's happening in the next election cycle that's coming up. Are you going to listen to Dr. Laura? Are you going to listen to Rush Limbaugh? You know, Michael Medved? How are you going to interpret what's going on? If you don't see present history in the terms of Genesis to Revelation, you've already messed it up. You're already screwed, skewed. And screwed, maybe, too. If you, if you take the skewed view, you get screwed because what? You know, I'm tinkering over here, and God's going, dude, you don't, you don't have it. You don't get it. So the Old Testament 
and the whole of Scripture is the only way I can figure out who I am. Or as I like to say, you can't understand who you are contemplating your navel. And it's a cartoon. If anyone's a cartoonist, I'll pay you for this. But I want to get this cartoon. And it's people with their head in their navel. Can, can you get that picture? Someone walking around. You can't live life with your head in your navel. Okay? You have to get the larger view. Part of the reason why I'm out of it is we went out to the grasslands up in Ramona with our grandkids. And uh, I ran for four miles in front of the horses carrying the grandkids and all the dust was coming up or whatever, you know. But one thing I remember that the lady, the horse lady, a friend who was telling me is, kids, don't look down. Look out. Look over the horse's ears and look over there because if you look down, you'll get what? Confused and you'll probably fall off the horse. Don't forget these are little kids whose feet can't even reach the stirrups, you know, so they're just bouncing up there. The perspective is God's perspective. Now, uh, again, uh, there is poetry in the Bible, legislation, but the bulk is history. The bulk of the scriptures is history. Okay, the major annual feasts all celebrate real time and space historical events. And I, and I just want to pound on this because even Bible-believing churches are going crazy at this point. If you were in the garden, you'd see a real snake. You'd see two real people. You know, that's time and space history. Two, the New Testament and the Gospels and Acts are history. Uh, there are things that actually happen. The two sacraments point back in history, right? What does, what does baptism, and points back to what? Okay, to regeneration, and the Lord's Supper points to the cross. What does the bread represent? The sinless life of Jesus Christ, and what's the blood represent? His blood covering our sin. So the two sacraments, or if you're offended by those terms, uh, the ordinances, the two sacraments point back in history to Jesus and the gospel. And so I think it's not too far from the truth to say that biblically the old paths are the good paths as opposed to the new ones. said last night, I'll say it again. Before I became a Christian, I didn't have a significant thought. And since I've become one, I haven't had an original one. And I'm proud of that. Uh, There was an old theologian, uh, some may have heard him, uh, Cornelius Van Til. And he said one phrase I think was very remarkable. What is our job as human beings? To think God's thoughts after him. Right? How do you learn English? Sitting on English. How do you learn Spanish? Okay? I go to all these foreign countries. I'm amazed. These little three-year-old kids ripping off you know, sounds that I can't even imagine. And they're speaking Czech or Slovak or Spanish you know, like a trooper. You learn from repeating. Okay? And you won't become godly unless you sit with God and you begin to think the way God thinks. Okay, all that's background. We're told in scriptures to learn from history. Someone real quick, read uh, Romans 4.23. Someone else get Romans 15.4, and someone else get 1 Corinthians 10.6. This is group participation. Now, if you're really unholy, go downstairs, and Tim Lane will get you godly. I'm just (laughs) going to get you to read scripture, okay? So, uh, Romans 4.23, who's got that? Just read it out loudly. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. Okay, so Abraham. It, God counted his trust in him as what? Righteousness. And then Paul sort of adds as an afterthought, listen, it wasn't written down just for his sake alone. This has implications for you. Okay, so we're tied back to the history Okay, now Romans 15.4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. See, now there's, there's a whole verse that you could just work off with people right there. The scriptures and what's recorded are what? So that you can persevere and be encouraged. That's the purpose of the scripture, but it's what? Past history, okay? And one more, 1 Corinthians 10.6. Now, these things became our examples 
to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Okay, so these things are written. It's very interesting. I, I find very, well, I, I won't go off, that'll be a rabbit trail, but there are some people say you should never use people in the scripture as examples. That's bad. You know, just point to Christ. Well, you know, Paul doesn't have a real problem saying, these guys did that, don't you do that. These guys did that, do that. Okay, and if that's moralism, then Paul's a moralist. But Paul isn't. Okay, It's all tied with Christ, but he uses them as an example. George Santana at least is credited with the idea, if we do not learn from history, we are doomed to repeat its mistakes. <clears throat> the biblical history gives us glimpses of eternal realities that transcend time and space. God's not bound by time and space. He made it. Holds it together. And we need to get his perspective. I'm saying the same thing in many different ways. Three, God is... God, this God-given history is a necessary grid through which you interpret secular history. Okay, see, the biblical counseling movement, I believe, needs to reflect on its own history in this framework. We did a little bit last night. One, we need to honestly evaluate ourselves in the light of these biblical paradigms. And what do we learn? Okay, and this is only one man's observation. Pluses. What are pluses in the biblical counseling movement? One, we got the right side of the inerrancy and infallibility issue. We're one of the few people that really takes seriously, takes seriously the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture. Everybody else is off doing googly gopped and getting back into medieval meditation things. And they got whole kinds of programs in Christian colleges to get you to contemplate your navel through, you know, uh, Loyola, whoever else is the patron saint, I use that sarcastically, of, of, the, of the movement. Two, the absolute authority of Scripture. Okay? Part of the whole thing is, uh, and, and I, just, uh, I just make this as a side comment, uh, a lot of people think Jay Adams is simplistic. <clears throat> Part of it is we are who we are, and, and Jay Adams is simple in this way. He's not simplistic. Is it? If the Bible says it, that's it. <clears throat> it's the end of the argument. You, know, you may want to get sophisticated and wrestle with it, but the bottom line is that's what God says. You know, that settles it. Okay? Three, the sufficiency and superiority of Scripture comes out of that. <clears throat> uh, scripture and what God is doing in saving people far outweighs anything that secular psychology. That's one of the reasons why I went and got a, a master's degree from Temple University. I figure if I'm going to be interacting, I better know what they say. And I say this not unkindly. I met a lot of ignorant PhDs. Nice people, real smart, but real ignorant. I'm not the the brightest light in the harbor. I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. But I went down to Temple University, and I got almost straight A's, except for one course, in graduate school, by basically doing things like this. Walk into one class, prof says, okay, this is a brilliant design. Not a Christian, daughter of a Christian. He goes, okay, <clears throat> you're going to write a paper for next week. Who is man? What's wrong with him? And how do you fix it? <clears throat> brilliant, you know. And, and then after you do that, you look at all the books, see the movies, etc., etc., and then you write the same paper at the end of the semester. I just had been saved in seminary. What? This is great. Romans 1, 2, and 3. You know, who is man? What's wrong with how to fix it? Jesus, that's it. Sin's the problem. Man's in the image of God. Got an A. Went through the whole course. Came up to her at the end. She goes, I know. Let me guess. I'm going to get the same paper. (laughs) Right. I said, can I critique these people from a biblical position? So I mean, all kinds of fun in graduate school. The bottom line is, no, I had people say that. <clears throat> I had another guy in developmental psychology. He's going about Piaget and Kohlberg's theory of immoral development. <clears throat> you know, Kohlberg eventually committed suicide. It's very interesting. But he was applying Piaget's theories. And <clears throat> what is it, <clears throat> Dr. Massari? Uh, what you're saying then is that According to Kohlberg, Adolf Eichmann wasn't responsible for his part in all those Jews 
dying. It was just the fact that his moral development hadn't reached to a certain stage. He goes, whoa, I had never thought of it that way. Okay? And then later he found out, and sorry, he could figure out Italian guy, Roman Catholics. Oh, a smart-ass seminarian. I should have known that by the questions you were asking. But, I mean, that's the kind of interaction with people. And people even say, I wish I could believe that, but I can't. You know? And so the, the bottom line is this helps us, okay? Um, sufficiency in superiority scripture. Whole family units. We've always had people in uh, and dealt with everyone, not just individuals. Uh, biblical ecumenicity, we've said that, you know, Presbyterians given this over to a Bible church, okay? Every member ministry and prophetic stance against politically correct thinking. The minuses, though, and I'm going to just camp on one of them, too great an emphasis on individual responsibility to the neglect of the interface of the individual with the family, the church, and the state. A lot of biblical counseling has sort of followed the, the secular model of dealing with individuals. Now, there's good books on marriage and family and other things, but there's been very little written on how do you interact with police, child protective services, uh, how do you interact with people, and more and more in our politically correct world. I, I, if God doesn't take me home, I really expect to be in jail someday just for preaching Romans 1. It's inevitable. It will be called a hate crime, and I'll do jail time because of it, okay? But we haven't really done that enough. Two, parachurch models versus the local church. Again, I hope people didn't misunderstand. I love the guys at CCF. I was on the board for many years, but it is a parachurch organization. See, and when we were CCF West and they said go independent, we went under a local church and stopped charging for counseling and had a different model. And we were poor, and that's why, you know, poor Grace Bible was poor too, because, you know, we run it as a ministry, really not as a business. Okay? Um, uh, Three, professional medical model versus pastoral model. We don't take third-party payments. We don't want state licensing. I'm not saying that's sinful, but, you know, Dear friends, when you get the state involved telling you what to do, you're going to be in deep, deep kimchi real quick. You know, if they tell me, and, we, and I can tell you stories about people who are biblical counselors who try to get state licensing. The, the premium one would be uh, read Psychobabble, Neil's brother, uh, Rich Gans, and what happened to him at Syracuse University, etc. And it's happened time and time again as people tried to get state licensed. Had a black gal, Afro-American, I could tell by, called me from the East Coast. She said, I am out here in California. This was years ago. I tried to get state licensed, and I passed my you know, written exams, but I got into it. And, and first thing they asked me is, um, you know, you're in counseling and you have one of these born-again Christians. How do you get behind their defense mechanisms and get to the real issues? And she says, well, I'm born-again Christian. You know, she, she failed. Now, she could never prove it. I said, well, you, you could take a class action suit against that. You're black, you're a woman, you could really do the job, you know, but, you know, the bottom line is you get in trouble, okay? Uh, Four, minimal doctrinal standards uh, versus rigorous confessional standards, and that's uh, having its effect now. The uh, exaltation of every member ministry to the neglect of ordained officers. Independence versus mutual accountability, academic models to the neglect of pastoral models. Okay, so I sort of that's a survey. <clears throat> Two, I think we need to admit these weaknesses and then correct them so that the biblical counseling movement can grow stronger and better glorify God and serve others. Okay. Um, no one's perfect, including me. And I know that because I argue with myself sometimes. And I change my mind. Okay? And then sometimes I regret that I changed my mind. Okay. I was going to wear my shirt, and my wife said, don't. Look professional. And the shirt says, masquerading as a normal person day after day is utterly exhausting. <laughs> and that was a payback for a shirt that I gave to a guy that I counsel, which was, I wish I was r- wrong at least once in my life. <laughs> so that was his payback to me, okay? Uh, but that we need to admit these weaknesses, correct them so the biblical council movement can grow stronger. 
God says the church is to build itself up in love, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians. We will focus on just one of these issues, the local church as the God-ordained instrument of counseling and discipleship. Now, I mean, that ought to be intuitive, right? The Great Commission is what? Go, go, make disciples, and two things. Baptizing, initiating into the body of Christ, okay, and then teaching them to observe what? Everything, okay? So, biblical discipleship involves those two main foci. You've got to go to do that. You don't wait for them to come to you, okay? So, uh, let me say this, and we'll, we'll camp down on the local church. Don't forget, I'm Presbyterian. By conviction, I won't argue my case at this point. I just ask all you independents and Baptists just to appreciate that we believe this is biblical. I know you can't believe that, but we do, okay? <laughs> and, and, and I get in trouble with Nank all the time. So I'm not trying to make you a Presbyterian, but I would just like you to hold Presbyterians and Episcopalians to their ecclesiology. Mm-hmm. You know, and if they're in a liberal denomination, you know, we could go down the whole direction. Everybody admits to it, even here, because these guys are involved with fire, right? Fellowship of Independent Reformed Evangelicals. Everybody knows. Come on, we'll admit it. I won't even get into those. We all know the church is broader than just the local congregation. But that's what we want to talk about today. In fact, I have this wonderful experience, and I shouldn't say this publicly, but Randy Patton, who's a wonderful guy, he's the head of NAC. At one point he asked me, Skip, would you come work part-time for NAC? So in that time I was, at, you know, so I said, I prayed about it, talked to my elders, and I got back to him, and, and I just, I loved yanking his chain. I said, you know, Randy, this is interesting. You know, I'm a Presbyterian, and Presbyterians believe in the local church. We believe that's where the action really happens. And, you know, you're asking me to leave a local church ministry to come work for a parachurch organization. He didn't know what to say. You know, he was doing that because he's a Baptist. You know what I, mean? I thought he'd sort of resonate to the local church, okay? But, but the point is, you know, Presbyterians, everyone believes the local church is where the action is at. And that's what we want to focus in on today. Is the local church optional, or is it really the place where counseling ought to take place? Well, let's look at this. Now, recognize this. Now, these little terms will help you. WCF is Westminster Confession of Faith. Okay? BCF is the Baptist Confession of Faith. You know, the 1688. The London Confession. That's the real one, okay? If you Baptists don't know that one, I highly recommend it to you. I wish you would get into it, because that's what real Baptists believe. I'm serious. I'm not... They messing around. 1682 is a lot older than some of you all are, okay? And then, okay? And then because I grew up in Philly, the Philadelphia Confession of Faith, which is this side of the ponds, you know, attempt, you know, to continue that. So you can look at that. And there's, there's the bibliography at the end. And these are ones that I pulled out of our, our uh, seminary library there. The Philadelphia Confession of Faith being the same as the old London Confession of 1688, together with the Westminster and Savoy Confessions, to which has been added the Philadelphia Confession Catechism. So you can tell it's an old Puritan type of thing. You know, those titles go on and on. Then Philadelphia Confession of Faith being the London Confession of Faith adopted in the Westminster. So I really highly recommend it because this is what I want to say here, and that's another aside. Good theology prevents you from falling into trouble. Almost every heresy that you want to get into takes what? a little slice of the truth, and ignores the rest of the Bible. You know, and there's a ditch on the right, and there's a ditch on the left. Uh, Just uh, one quick example. Is Christ our mediator or our model? He's both. He's got to be, yeah, he's got to be our moderator first, because you can't model him. But there's such an emphasis in some circles on the mediatorial work of Christ, you know, as the one who saves us, 
that they forget that every New Testament writer, let's put John and Jude aside because, you know, they got their problems. Not that they're problems, but Luther, you know, didn't like James or whatever. But James and Jude, every New Testament writer holds Jesus Christ up as our moral model. Liberalism says you can imitate Christ without the new birth. Okay? Muddled mysticism ignores the fact that once you've been born again, you better start looking like Jesus. And if you don't look like Jesus to some extent, maybe you haven't been born again. Maybe the new birth hasn't occurred. So, again, that middle ground. First of all, main point. God has ordained three institutions and given them areas of responsibility. God ordains the family. That's clear from Genesis, Deuteronomy, Proverbs, Ephesians. Parents are to disciple their children and grandchildren. God ordains the church. That's the second institution. Interestingly, at the beginning, there was only what? The family. And in the family was the church in germinal form and the state in germinal form. Okay? And uh, God ordains the church. The family originally had the three functions or office from creation until Exodus 20. I won't get into that theological argument. When did the church stay? For most of it, it's at Pentecost, okay? But at least for this way, the church as a worshiping body with ordained officers in the Old Covenant started at Sinai. No longer could families, you know, make their own sacrifices, right? And even at that time, they no longer could go out and just fight wars, you know? Uh, Abraham did all of those. He was a prophet, a priest, and a king. But you come to Israel, and God separates them out. They're reunited in Christ. So the family originally had the three functions. Uh, prophet, priest, and king are seen in Adam, Noah, Abraham as the covenantal heads of the family. The Mosaic covenant separates the three out. The new covenant has these three all in Christ, and then in the officers of the church, both the ordained officers and the general office of all believers. The church is tasked with discipleship process. Matthew 28, we've mentioned that. For now, we skip the state, which is not given any discipleship responsibilities. It gets a little confusing. We have a military chaplain with us. You're, you're really doing both. You're in the chain of command. You're following Christ in your adoring body. So it's a mixed metaphor, but it's difficult. But the bottom line is the state has not been given the keys of the kingdom, and it isn't to be involved in discipleship. If counseling is discipleship, the case is closed. It has to be in the church. It's not for state licensing. Okay? Um, Two, God's servants are to be salt and light. We all know that. What are you supposed to be doing in your community? Shining and preserving. Sermon on the Mount. Okay? Uh, The Old Testament. Okay? And you can look these up later. I won't take time to read them. Chosen race. That's used of Israel. Deuteronomy. Uh, Treasure possession. Deuteronomy 7. A royal priesthood. Uh, Exodus 19. A holy nation. Exodus 9. Leviticus 20. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, etc. All these things are spoken of of Israel. Well, you come to the New Testament, 1 Peter, all those are applied to who? To the church. Okay? And so we are God's now chosen race, treasure possession, royal priesthood, holy nation. So Christ has all three offices of prophet, priest, and king, and believers partake in these as his body. We need to be what? Telling the world what God thinks. We need to be interceding for the world, and we need to be ruling in terms of doing God's will and carrying it out. Thirdly, God gives unique and sufficient tools to disciple the nations. And here's where I want to talk about the practical implications. Okay? In your counseling center, do you have preaching? No, you really don't have preaching unless the body is called together. And it's special. I don't know about you, but I see corporate worship as something very special. It's not chump change. It's not chopped liver. It's what? 
maybe I shouldn't use a sexual analogy, but, you know, husbands and wives love each other, right? Dirty diapers, kids, homeschool, all the other stuff. But then there's what? Intimacy and intercourse. That's, to me, that's what public worship is. It's the time when the body is together and we are in the presence of the living God. It's not just an extended Bible study. Something is going on or should be going in public worship that doesn't happen anywhere else in the body. Small groups are good. All the other things are good. But corporate worship is unique. And I don't think uh, generally Christians, and perhaps even in the biblical counseling movement, we have highlighted public worship. as we, It's not the only thing. I fight that battle all the time. Like People think everything can be done from the pulpit. Yeah, if you preach right, then you won't have counseling. Hello? You have kids? <laughs> what do you mean? You have, do you have family worship? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's all you need, right? Don't you have to spank your kids and talk with them and deal with them? Oh, yeah? Okay, well, yeah. That, in other words, if you think you can grow your congregation just from the pulpit, that's like trying to say, I can take care of my kids just in family worship. You know? Sheep ba and poop and do all kinds of things. You, you got to go chase them. You know? And, and God love them. I mean, it took Jesus Christ. Glad I'm not your savior. I'd give up real quick. You know, I'd get off the cross and say, call the angels. That's it. Wipe them out. Roll it up. Get 70 AD quick. You know, let's get to, get to the judgment part. You know, you know let's, let's roll it up. Okay. You know, uh, Christ loves his people, but how does he primarily do this? And this, to me, it's mysterious. And, and you guys that are preachers know this, right? How's God work in people's lives as you preach? But he do. And it's interesting. One sermon is supposed to reach 20, 200, 2,000 people. Think about that. Just, just think about that. That's an amazing thing. That one sermon, if it's prepared well, can feed everybody from the little, little ninos all the way up to the aged people. But that's God's way. Now, okay, that's special. In your counseling, do you highlight your preaching? Maybe if you're the preacher, okay? <laughs> you can say things like, guess what? We don't charge for counseling, but here's the deal. If you don't come and get fed by me, I'm not going to counsel you. And by the way, this is an aside. If it's somebody else's sheep, don't sheep steal. You've got enough problems of your own anyway. <laughs> I'm serious. I used to do this. I, you know, I believe that there are biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage. I had a good brother that I was in a ministerium with and first pastorate, and he didn't believe there was any grounds for divorce. So you know what he'd do? He'd send his people who were divorced to me for counseling, and I'd marry them, and then they'd go back there. And I'm looking back at Skip, you're really dumb. See, they, they, they get the tithes, and they get the offerings, and they get the people. Next time, I'm going to go, hey, give me two converts in exchange, and then I'll do it. <laughs> but, you know, seriously, you, you take somebody else's problems on, you don't want that. But you can say, look, look, this counseling is good, it's discipleship, it's important, but, but you need to get fed. You need to get fed. And, and, and here, I'm going through Ephesians, or I'm going through this book, you need to come and sit under this ministry. And by the way, as an assignment, I want you to take notes. Okay? Or, I want you to take notes, and secondly, I want you to listen to this sermon at least twice this week. And take notes on this, and come back and tell me if you got it. Because that's what we're going to go from. See? I think too much we've ignored that. It's good to give people individual Bible studies. Go work through John, you know, uh, Wayne Mack's book or, or read you know, Paul Tripp's book. That's all good. But you know, get them into the Word and get them under sermons. Okay? And so it is uh, Scripture. Let's look at this. Someone, someone turn, if it uh, gets before me, Romans 10, 14 through 17. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Through what, 17? Okay. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. 
Okay. You believe that? People can be saved through reading the Bible, but it's primarily the preached word. Why? And this is where, not to denigrate anybody else, but God has sovereignly chose men like Mike or others to preach the gospel, Kurt back there, and when they stand up, Christ is speaking through them. Not infallibly, but as they nail what the scripture says, Christ is really preaching to them. The Holy Spirit is using. And that is something that is special. Now again, like I said, the balance is you don't get so caught up in preaching. I fight this all the time, you know. Preaching is it, preaching will do that, you know, and I can name names and I won't, you know, of people. And and the problem is if you're a great preacher, you know, and God blesses that, you tend to think you can do everything from there. But you can't, okay? But preaching, okay, you got the teaching on that in the Westminster Confession, the larger catechism, the Baptist Confession, the Philadelphia Confession, look at those. So homework of listening to and studying sermons. Jim's really good at this. <clears throat> it's because he's a better preacher than I am. But okay, he, he tapes all his sermons, right? How, how many of you guys are preachers here? Okay, uh, you tape all your sermons. Yeah, they're up on sermonaudio.com. You can never listen to all the sermons on sermonaudio.com, but the bot they're there. I think and use that and get people say. Uh, some guy blew me away. I forgot. I, I preached uh, when I was here before I left to go to South Carolina. Preached through uh, uh, Isaiah. You know, got up to the good part, and then I had to stop at the 39 because I was leaving. But you know, some guy said, "Hey, thanks for what?" He says, "I heard you on you know your uh, I was preaching through Isaiah, and I listened." I said, "What? Somebody actually listened to me?" Okay. <clears throat> but get him to do that and say, "Okay, I want you to work through these series." whether it's on marriage or child-rearing or anything else, or particularly working through books, okay? Enough said on that. The sacraments, okay? Or again, if that's offensive terms to some of you, uh, the ordinances, okay? Uh, what about those? You know, those are important things. Christ instituted them, right? We're not Roman Catholics. There's not seven of them. We can't go invent them. But there are two things that he really told us to. You need to be baptized and you need to do what? Lord's Supper. Okay, and I'll, I'll go on this one. You know, I was in a congregation. I missed this. We had weekly communion. Not Episcopalians don't have you know you know that kind of view. But I'm telling you, and here's just an aside to you preachers. All these things of preach Christ and da 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 da. You know, if you're not, if you have communion every week and you're relating your sermon to the Lord's table, you're never going to miss the cross. Never. Because there it is. There it is. Okay? And, and uh, I wonder if anyone's ever given this as an assignment. I want you to take notes on, on the communion meditation. <laughs> Think about that. You know, or I want you to go and, and write down, what does the pastor say about baptism? You know, what's it represent? And you know, we won't get into the theological argument, but you know, what, what's that? Re- uh, you know, what are you thinking about when you see somebody baptized? Okay? Whether you hold the believer's baptism or, or child baptism. Point is, what's that say to you? Were you baptized? What do you think about your baptism? Do you remember the day you were baptized? Do you remember the vows that you were taking? You know what I'm saying? Calling people back to that and reminding them. It's just kind of like what? <clears throat> yeah. People go, I don't want to be married anymore. Good dude, you got the ring. You are married. You may not want to be, but you know, start acting like you're married, okay? Okay, what about that baptism? You know, what did you promise? You know, or I don't know how you all do it, but when, when people join our congregation, they make promises. You ask them questions. Do you believe that the Bible is the infallible Word of God? Do you believe that it's Christ's salvation? You know, right? You believe in the Trinity? Uh, you know, remind people of that and say to them, I would like you to go see this. And I would like you to think about it. In fact... That's one thing I don't have ever seen in the biblical counseling movement is somebody hand somebody say, here's something on the Lord's Supper. Here's something on baptism. Go study this because these are really important things. I mean, Jesus pointed to the two of them, so he must be pretty important if he, you know, kind of highlighted them and said, go do them. And so in biblical counseling, you see, the local church is where all that happens. And I try to be real sensitive when somebody comes in you know, I say, oh, just, just relax, you know, I'm a Presbyterian, so I, you know, 
That, that's really a problem for some people. I actually had one guy like that. It's, I won't give too many details, but kind of a fundamentalist Baptist uh, situation. And, and I got to know the pastor, really trusted me real well, and it was amazing. You know what I mean? And, and like, he sent somebody in for counseling, and like halfway through this, I go, you're not listening to me, are you? And this is this actually happened. He looked at me and goes, yeah, you guys killed my, my ancestors. Well, you understand, you know, I mean, there's some of that. Did they go in on the Reformation or whatever? But he, he you know, he reminded me of that. And, and basically, <clears throat> and I almost looked at him and said, but I said, look, you're here because you're abusing your wife. So forget my theology and listen to Christ. But you see, you know, th- that can be very, very crucial in terms of the relationship. So put the theology aside, but get to the essentials of saying, okay, what does your baptism mean? You made a promise to God, and you can't walk away from this. This is spiritual adultery. That's not just the metaphor the Scripture uses. You know, you plead with people, and, and you wrestle with them over that. Uh, I didn't include it here, but if the guy's ordained, you need to do that also. I had one guy, this is true, this happened in San Diego. And you, if you know me a little bit, I like to use humor, even in serious situations. Do me a favor. <clears throat> now let me get this straight. You are going to leave your wife. And you're going to run off with this, this is an ordained guy, run off with this other woman, right? And you're going to ask for forgiveness later and God's going to give you a great ministry. He said, do me a favor. Stay right here. He says, why? He says, stay here and give me a 20-minute head start. He says, why? He says, because when God starts dealing with you, there might be collateral damage. (laughs) (laughs) And I want a 20-minute head start to get out of Dodge before, boom! (laughs) So, so again, you see with the baptism and the Lord's Supper, uh, point this to people. Now, this is also important. Okay, what does the, the Lord's Supper say? When you take the Lord's Supper, what are you saying? I can't live without Jesus. Without His body and blood, I'm toast. Literally. As well as a metaphor. I can't. I can't live without Him. And so you have to come back to to that. Because some people I know will go, well, you know, I'm not right with so-and-so, and and so I don't want to drink condemnation. I, I read 1 Corinthians 11. I get that, man. I don't want to get sick and weak and maybe die. You say, that's good. Okay, but what are you saying when you don't take communion? I can get along without Jesus. I said, dude, you're between a rock and a hard place. <laughs> the rock is Jesus, and the hard place is you better repent of your sins and take communion because you can't get along without Him. See my point? See how these things come into counseling, not just as ideas, but, but really as something to grasp hold of these people and get them to work through in preparation for communion or whatever. So, homework. Baptism, membership vows, notes on the Lord's Supper, study passages in the Gospel, and study the catechism, you know, in terms of as they explain it. Third one is prayer. Okay. <clears throat> now again, uh, we say people can't change without the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Okay? Good. Hopefully you can even get an amen, if not a nod, out of that one, okay? <laughs> and so, how do we, do we teach people how to pray? Kind of interesting, uh, you know. As many churches I've been in, rarely you get oh, this is how to study the Bible. Okay, this is how to witness. But very rarely do you get a whole course on prayer. Think about that. Think of prayer is like breathing. I mean that that's that's what the Holy Spirit moves me to confess my sins, to rejoice in Christ, to pray for others. Prayer really is an attack on, and we need to be teaching our counselees how to pray, and really, to be honest, especially for your pastors when you have your public prayers. Now, that's a little different because you're praying for the whole congregation, but they ought to learn from your prayers. Probably one of the greatest compliments I've ever had. Never been real praised in terms of my preaching, but, you know, one time, I'll remember this, when I first came to San Diego, went up to a Baptist church in the L.A. area, was preaching, and the lady came up and said, 
thank you for your prayers. I said, why? She said, because I felt like I was in the presence of God. You know, it, it really seemed to me that you were actually talking to God. See, so maybe say, okay, I want you to uh, outline the prayers in the service. Go to prayer meeting. Oh, by the way, here's this uh, godly saint. Go over and talk to him or to her and ask them everything you can learn about prayer. See what I'm saying? These, these are things that ought to be coming into, uh, into the uh, counseling. And where are you going to get that? At the church. That's where you have prayer meetings. That's where you have people you know, to pray with. Yeah, and by the way, we ought to be, uh, I'm sure you know this, but you ought to be praying every time you counsel. You ought to start with prayer, end with prayer. I mean, so people realize we're in the presence of God. Sometimes if something is so neat that's happened, maybe you need to stop in the middle of it and pray right then. So, you know, you can be a model, but my point is, look to the church to teach people how to pray. Now, that could be difficult if the church that you send people to doesn't pray. But all your small groups ought to have prayer. You know, if you don't have a corporate prayer meeting, other things will work on that. So, Matthew 6, you've got the teaching there. You've got the homework, How to Grow in Christ. There's a book, uh, uh, I, didn't, I should have referenced that. That's a little workbook, very good. It's a primer for new Christians. It's called How to Grow in Christ by Jack Kinnear, K-I-N-N-E-R. Just a shameless plug. He was my intern at one time years ago. That's when he wrote that years ago back in Jersey. And he teaches at the seminary now where I'm at in terms of New Testament. But that that book uh, is very helpful. And there's a chapter in there on prayer. And so there are things that you can do. Take notes on the pastoral prayer, a prayer meeting. Uh, Study the Lord's Prayer. Get people to say, okay, this would be a... Uh, go to prayer meeting and uh, take your prayers and everyone else's prayer and measure them by the Lord's Prayer. And you will notice that Aunt Millie's toe, an ingrown toenail, you know, and Sally's sick dog and a few other things that maybe are not wrong to pray for, but the bulk of prayer meeting often comes out what? The last half of the prayer. So I remind you what? The Ten Commandments are what? The first table and the second table. What comes first? God or man? God. And boy, oh boy, if we take five through ten and put that before one through four, we've reversed the order. The greatest commandment is to love God first and then our neighbor. Now, you don't want to put a wedge between them, but you've got to get the emphasis where the Scripture puts it. So, uh, teaching people to pray. That would be a great project for someone... <clears throat> to write something on prayer for the biblical counseling movement that they could put into people's hands. Well, moving on. <clears throat> Discipline. You've got Matthew 18, that whole process, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Thessalonians 3, Titus 3, Hebrews 13. That would be a whole seminar in itself. <clears throat> Why does counseling have to be in the church? Because an independent center can't do what? Discipline people. Go make disciples, and the process is discipline. (laughs) Usher them into the church, and you discipline them out for what? The glory of God, the purity of the body, and the reclaiming of the person. But that process happens in the church. And again, there's the listings for you from the Westminster Confession, the Baptist Confession, Philadelphia Confession. See, to be honest, if you go back to those days in the Reformation, other than the baptism issue, you know, the Presbyterians and Baptists and Independents really basically all thought theologically the same, and the Savoy and other things are are very similar to the Westminster Confession. Baptism, different, but, you know, uh, that thinking. So what about the homework? Uh, regular membership. Now again, I, I you know some of you come from fellowships that don't have formal membership. You know I don't want to get in a fight over that, but just the the suggestion. It's kind of interesting. People that don't have formal membership, I always ask them, well, do you let couples who live together consider them married? Well, no, they have to go up. They have to get a license and they have to get married. Okay, well, 
If shacking up together isn't the same thing as marriage, why isn't there a formal covenant? Okay, most independents and Baptists used to have, you know, membership covenants that they were making. And I would opt for that because why? People need to take that membership seriously. And if a person is not in a church, you need to say, come here. And if not, you know, here, here's other guys over here. Here's a guy over here in a fire church that I trust, or here's a guy over at Calvary Chapel here. You know, one of the things that we did that I really uh, believed Jay Adams on this when I went to my first pastorate is we formed a ministerium to fight the abortion issue. This is back in the 70s. And we got together, and some of the guys suffered for it. You're with those baby baptizers. It took me five years to convince them that a Presbyterian could actually be born again. It was really a tough sell, but, you know, they, they, they finally figured out that I actually was born again, you know. And so we had this ministerium because there was a liberal, you know, ministerium that was pro-abortion in the area. But one of the things that we did pull off is we honored each other's discipline. If you come to my church from this brother's church, I send you back. No, no, no you're not coming here. You know, okay, I'll go with you or whatever. We've got to get this straightened out because you've got to leave on the right basis. Okay? We would honor each other's discipline. So some of this, there's a Mac and another guy. Well, what's his name? Well, why can't I think of his name? But uh, Life in the Father's House. Okay? It's about membership. You know, and church membership. Okay, uh, they were together both up at uh, the Masters. Oh, it'll come to me. It's kind of interesting now because he turned Presbyterian, but you know. So, but, uh, but he and Wayne wrote that together. Uh, got regular membership, restorative membership, the Handbook of Church Discipline. How do you do church discipline? Is it really important? Now, in the whole counseling process, you've got a lot of people who. Don't have reconciliation with other people. Forgiveness and reconciliation is a very big part. Well, how do you go about that? How do you teach them to get things right with people in their congregation? So study the above scriptures and teaching. You've got this, and uh, they really need to know these things and to be involved in it. And then finally, uh, there may be other things I'm missing, but deacons. I believe in the structure, your local level, there needs to be Elders and deacons. Okay, I think that's the biblical pattern. Okay, and your deacons are what? They're they're the men that do the ministry. So that what? On the parallel with those proto deacons in Acts, that the apostles can do what? They can do the teaching and the discipline, uh, you know, ministry and prayer. So the deacons are there to do all the other stuff. You've got Acts 6, 1 Timothy 3. Uh, teaching, again, there's those things. Homework, interview the deacons and have them evaluate your gifts for assignment to task. I don't know of many congregations that are set up like that. But I think congregations should be. The deacons ought to be there, what? Not just to do everything, but what? To deploy the people in ministry. Ephesians 4. I did this in my first congregation. It's a little nasty, but, you know, uh, I was preaching through Ephesians. And I, I finally got them over the hump of, you know, talking back to me. And so, okay, let's, let's, uh, let's, uh, what do you think I'm supposed to do as a pastor? You know, so, oh, I'm supposed to go visit the sick and, da, 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 you know, whole thing, you know. And, and it, was, it was great. It's just exactly what I wanted. So, like I said, well, good. You just got done developing your job description. My job is to train you to do that, other than the preaching and the teaching. Okay? And the deacons ought to be there. Now, this is interesting, depending on your view of the Spirit and the gifts and everything. But, but the deacons ought to be there to really assess people. Now, how do you know God's will? Okay? I know some of you were in the intro course with, with Jim, and he hit that pretty strong the last day. You know God's will, what? Through Scripture and through the leaders as they assess you. And they kind of go, guess what? I don't think you're called to preach. In fact, I don't even think you're called to be married at this point. <laughs> I've said that to some guys who have been counseling. They get mad at me. They say, don't come to my house and try to date my daughter. <laughs> you know, even my troubled one. No, I mean, you know, 
because you're bad news. You know, you don't have a job. You know, you don't know where you're going in life. Uh, but that's what the... the you met some of those guys, right? Yeah, sent them out my way. I got... No. <laughs> uh, bottom line is the deacons ought to sit down with them and say, okay, what kind of gifts do you have? What can you do? Okay? Because, you know, again, uh, a lot of us even, you know, really function more like Roman Catholic parishes, right? All grace flows through the domini, you know, and everybody else sits on their butts, you know, and give, you know, but no, uh, every member under that. The deacons should be assessing people's gifts and assigning them things to do. And you can be doing that in your counseling as well. But how to do that in the church? Even mentorship. People say, well, I don't know anybody. Well, go to your elders or deacons and find out who's a godly older woman or man, you know, that could disciple you. What's an accountability partner? Is this somebody holds you accountable to do what you've promised to do? You see, that can't be done in the counseling context. It's very hard. If you have an independent center, and that's why we have, and I'm sure IBCD still does this, we try to pull the, the pastor in and get somebody from the church to be accountable. Because once you get done, hopefully, by God's grace, fixing the person, what do you do? You have to send them back. See, That's the other thing, too. That's the missing thing in a a counseling center. You'll get the love on them, and they don't love you back. They go off to somebody else. But again, hopefully you can see all of this. Okay, let me wrap it up, and let you take the last five minutes or so for questions. Please take all this in a 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 30 sense. This is a better way, a more excellent way. I'm not criticizing everything that we've done or failed to do, but it, the Corinthians were in trouble. And we don't want to miss Christ's body, either sense of the word. Uh, the body of Christ in terms of him in communion or the body uh, in terms of people. Secondly, you might learn from the historical example of IBCD, since I'm here. CCF, IBCD, and Bayview Orthodox Presbyterian Church and Grace Bible Church. So we went, you know, again, um, for all my sins and everything, I try to be consistent with what I think is biblical. So when CCF cut us loose, said you're no longer going to be CCF West, okay, we changed our name. It was a nice little plug from, uh, you know, Jim Lane last night. He didn't realize that. I like your name because you got discipleship in there. Well, that's why we put it in there, okay? From Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, a 5013C, you know, independent organization, you know, we put it back into a church. And then what we did with that, you know, with, with Grace Bible and other churches, for other reasons we got... Uh, pastors from other churches to support and to talk with us and advise us, even though it was our ministry. So uh, that's what happened there. Nank, if you know anything of the history of Nank, Nank, as I said last night, was about to die, and we came up with the idea, look, give it to a local church. So technically it wasn't a local church ministry, but it came under Faith Baptist in Lafayette, Indiana, and, and humanly speaking, I think Nank would have probably died because CCF had cut it loose uh, if it didn't get under a local church where Bill Good, who was the senior pastor, became the executive director of Nank. And basically, Faith Baptist took it on, and for years they supported it and run it. There, again, there's just no way that uh, an independent group can do what that local church does. So three, your counseling, your counselees will be enriched by being centered in the local church. God ordained the church, so it must be the best at the task as God has given it. And I I hope that God will bless you as you implement this. Okay, questions on this, theologically or practically, etc., on the importance of the local church. And I try to emphasize the activities in that local church. Yes, David. Um, I mean, you, you talk about drawing people in <coughs> here at a counseling center like this. Um, when I think about there are situations where it helps the church to have a parachurch organization like IBCD or CCEF to be able to, to handle some cases, although I think the hope <coughs> what you're saying is that 
you guys are training counselors who do the counseling in the local church, because it seems like there, if counseling is discipleship, that there needs to be like this transition where someone, you know, is pulling up the weeds and dealing with counseling in more intense, you know, expert right. sessions. But they are transitioning to discipleship right. on an ongoing basis in the, in the local congregation. Um, and so, are you, do you have situations where you're, you're bringing somebody from, uh, whether it's be a pastor or an elder or somebody who's got some training to be able to do ongoing discipleship? Uh, yes. Yeah, what we believe is, okay, at least I, when I was running it, and I'm pretty sure it's still the same, what we try to do is get that person back under pastoral care. Okay, so what classically has been viewed as counseling is problem-oriented counseling in our culture. And even we've caught in that. But it's a subset of the larger issue of discipleship. See, and if we, if we miss that, again, we, we focus in the wrong place. We, we focus less on becoming like Christ and solving problems, which I think can be a danger because then we become people, we want to fix problems instead of helping people become Christ-like. The goal always was, and I think it's probably for financial and other reasons, IBCD still thinks, if we could work ourselves out of business. I mean, that really was, and that's really different, to be honest, and that's not a, a stone, but CCF has a view of trying to you know, do a good work, but they don't ever cease uh, to exist in their own mind. From the early days, Jay always said, we want to run ourselves out of business when the church starts doing what the church should do. See, what happens is, and for all the good that God does in parachurch, you know, campus crusade starts or something else starts to do what? Well, because the church isn't reaching the campus, or the church isn't doing this, or the church really isn't doing, uh, reaching uh, the trafficking trade, you know, the sex trade. So what do we do? We set up an independent organization to do really what only the church can do, and, and God blesses with crooked sticks and all that. But I think it's, you know, really, uh, it's better to do it you know, in that larger context. And that's why it's so important for other churches to look at this and say, look, we don't look at IBCD to do our job for us. They're there to train us to do our job. And, and I hope that people always get that. So the emphasis is on a different syllable. You know, the emphasis is on a different syllable. Are you a training center or are you a counseling center? And when you become a counseling center, what everybody does is they dump all their problem cases on you. And they look for you to fix them and then take them back. And uh, I don't think that's as healthy as it ought to be. Tom? Yeah, IBCD is definitely a training center. Um, it's not fair church. It's under church. We believe in everything that we have to do at the church. Um, we try to get pastors to come in and be part of the counseling. We can't do that. We try to hand the person off to the pastor for, for discipleship. And beyond that, we have... Uh, while we're counseling, we have other churches there observing and learning so they can go back to their church and do what we're doing. Yeah. And one of the things slightly different is that we, we always do things face-to-face. And uh, others kind of do it through two-way mirrors. Because we really believe the personal element. That's a minor thing, but it, the personal element, people need to see people face-to-face. And uh, when people are there, now sometimes they say, well, I don't want people in. I say, okay, well, who do you think's paying for your counseling? You're not. <laughs> you know, you know, they're, they're basically paying for it. So, again, it depends on your goals. And, uh, and you know, think about that. One of the blessings is for evangelism and for helping other people in the area, if you become the training center, people start coming to you. And if, in a sense, you think you've got something good, that you want to give away to other people, that's one way of doing it. So, Okay, other quick questions before we go. Yes, Mike. Uh, best case scenario for, for the actual counseling itself, pastor's office, um, Christians in the church throughout the community and homes and things, or actually a center in the church where people come in and this is based right in here? Good question. Where is the best place to do it? Yes. Wherever, no, seriously, wherever you can pull it off. I've counseled people in McDonald's, you know, especially when they're suicidal or something. Uh, but the privacy is an issue. Some people, if you want to do it evangelistically, they say, oh, people won't come to the church building. But, you know, there's all kinds of different ways. And see, again, 
the Holy Spirit needs to lead the local leadership to figure out how they're going to slice and dice that. Tom? Yeah. So in, in our case, the, the members of Grace Bible Church don't go to the IBCD training center for counsel. They, first of all, we're trying to train everybody to counsel each other, and then they go to, their, to the eldership for the tougher things. So it's just within the local church. Yeah. So it, again, it depends how you want to do this. and. And people can do different things. People say, well, we want to have a counseling center that reaches the community for evangelism. Uh, Others will say, I want to be the, the training center. But I think the, the main thing that I, I want to emphasize in this seminar is keep that local church flavor because uh, it's, it's hard to take something independent and keep it under control. Uh, it's hard enough to do the church, but... There's a structure there, and it's easier to manage. Okay, let's pray and let you go. I think it's lunchtime, and people are probably hungry now. Father, we thank you for this. We thank you for the local body. Lord, it's amazing how you set this up all over the world. Lord, we really groan for our brothers and sisters in closed countries, where, Lord, they have almost no body life whatsoever. And, Lord, how they can function We have no idea. But, Lord, here we have the freedom, at least now. And so help us to build up the local body and use this, Lord, because this is your ordained method. We praise you and we bless you in Christ's name. Amen. Copyright 2012, IBCD, All Rights Reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.